Listen to Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God gave Abram a promise of a chosen son, and through this son would come a chosen nation. And through this chosen nation would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and through the Messiah, the rest of the nations would hear the good news of forgiveness of sin, and the representatives of all nations and tribes and tongues and peoples would then populate the future kingdom of Christ. That's God's redemptive plan right there. But to form this chosen nation and to set up the situation in which God would obligate them to himself, he told Abraham that his people, those who come from him, would be in captivity for 400 years. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons and a daughter. Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, was the most responsible, and Jacob, you recall, put him in charge of the family business. That didn't go over well with his older brothers, especially since Joseph was just 17 years old at the time. His brothers eventually sold him into slavery to Egypt, telling his father Jacob that Joseph had been killed. And by God's providence, though, Joseph went from a slave to the prime minister of Egypt by the time he was 30 years old. And then through a terrible famine, Joseph reunited himself with his father Jacob. He forgave his wayward brothers and brought the whole family to Egypt, 70 of them. Now, that brings us to Exodus chapter 1, and we can turn there together. And in Exodus 1, we're going to see kind of the setup here for the situation that will bring not one, not two, not three, but four visits of the angel of the Lord. Four visits of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who is the subject of our Christmas series this year. This is the ministry of the Son of God we're calling Backstage Before Bethlehem. And in Exodus 1, we get to kind of the linchpin verses. This is where everything changes. Verse 6 of Exodus chapter 1. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So this new pharaoh, he was a foreign invading king. He wasn't even ethnically Egyptian. He wouldn't feel any obligation whatsoever to the Hebrews. He had no friendliness that the previous pharaohs had toward Joseph and toward his family. And so, verse 9, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
And of course, this is all in line with exactly with what God, what God told Abraham a couple of centuries earlier. But because the Hebrews continued to multiply so quickly on such a massive scale, Pharaoh began to attempt the murder of Jews. The Hebrew midwives were commanded by Pharaoh to kill all the male babies born to the Hebrew women. The midwives didn't cooperate, so Pharaoh gave an order to all of his people to throw infant Hebrew boys into the Nile River. Now we see entering the main human character, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. The child is watched by his older sister, as you recall, and God providentially arranges for this baby, this baby boy to be saved by the very daughter of Pharaoh. And he would be raised in the courts of Egypt, but he would be nursed and brought up for a few years by a Hebrew nanny, his actual mother, and he would know his heritage. He would know where he came from. Verse 11, this is, of course, Moses. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Well, now Moses is a renegade from Egypt. He married. He had a family. Verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What a marvelous declaration that God was always in the middle of all this and God knew. And While God would raise up Moses as a human hero, now we get to the real center of the story. The real center of the story is introduced and he shows himself to Moses and this is the angel of the Lord. Now, so far we've seen in the last few weeks that the angel of the Lord comes with specific missions and they all have something to do with bringing up and, and bringing about the ultimate redemptive plan of God, that a chosen nation will pave the way for all nations to come into a right relationship with God. So, so far, we've seen that the angel of the Lord came to impart saving grace. He came to promise a substitute sacrifice. He came to pick Israel's mother. He came to give Jacob, the father of the tribes of Israel, to give Jacob faith. And today we see that his mission is to redeem God's nation. His mission today is to redeem God's nation. Now, this is very different than something we saw last week. Last week, in the story of Eleazar, Abraham's servant, who goes to find a wife for Isaac, you recall that the angel of the Lord was a behind-the-scenes providential God working. He was in the background. He was working through human events, through human circumstances, through prayer. 
and so forth. But here in the redemption of God's nation, the angel of the Lord is at the forefront. He is the center of attention. He's highly active. He's highly obvious. And in fact, the last appearance we're going to see this morning, he shows himself to all of Israel. And so this is exactly the opposite. This is not the providence of God at work so much as the massive power of God at work. What we're going to see this morning is what we'll just call a four-part process of redemption. The four-part process of redemption, of buying back his people for his own possession, creating in them an obligation to himself. This obligation is created because he is saving them from their slavery. He's setting up the conditions necessary now for them to be officially formed into the nation of Israel. So let's look at this four-part process of redemption. Part one is a mediating savior, a mediating savior, someone to come in between. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now the reader here is alerted that something special is about to happen. We know this because we get a clue and we get an explanation. The clue is Mount Horeb. This is another name for Mount Sinai. And so you know, oh, I know the rest of this story. Something special is going to happen here. And the explanation we get is that this is the mountain of God. This is the very place where Moses would soon lead all of Israel back to receive the law of God. And now we're introduced to the angel of the Lord. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. The angel of the Lord here is clearly identified as God in verse 4. And so this pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Son of God is not, by the way, appearing as a fire. It says he's appearing in a flame of fire. So what would this look like? This is a man, the angel of the Lord, in the midst of a bush that is flaming. This is an important concept for us because the presence of God is linked to fire all throughout Exodus. We see in chapter 13 the pillar of fire going before Israel. At Mount Sinai, when all Israel would be gathered, Exodus 19.18 says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. That's a a portable oven that nomads would take with them as they traveled. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. After the building of the tabernacle, Exodus 40, verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. As a matter of fact, the description in Exodus 19 of Mount Sinai, God being like smoke and and the fire of a kiln, an oven. This is exactly, exactly the same picture that we get the very first time that God uses fire to represent himself in a covenant setting, sort of like Sinai. If we went all the way back to Genesis 15, you don't have to turn there. God appears as an oven, as a kiln with smoke and flashing fire. Now, I know... For us, we're picturing the cube that is plugged into our kitchens. That, that's not the type of oven. We're talking about a smaller, round, kind of ceramic device that had material put in it to burn. And so 
God appears as this oven with smoke and flashing fire as he passed through the cut-apart animal sacrifices, which was to confirm his covenant with Abraham. And this is, this is the earthenware oven of a nomad. And when it's filled and it's starting to get up to heat, you have smoke and fire billowing out of it. And it's a, it's a, a massive sight. Now, this isn't explained in Genesis in that first vision of God as fire and smoke. But in Exodus, we see the fire as the presence of holy God and the smoke as the gracious concealing of his holiness. Exodus 19.18, Mount Sinai is just the upsized version of the smoking oven of Genesis 15. We should also notice that in Scripture, Fire, the presence of God, it does one of two things. It either purifies or it consumes. The bush is purified by the fire. It's not consumed. Now, I don't know what happened to any of the bugs that were in the bush, but if you were in the Mount Sinai wilderness and saw a 3,500-year-old bug, it was probably on that bush. Maybe it was purified. But in this case, the bush, the land, all around it is made pure, is made holy. In fact, we begin to see this in verse 4. When the Lord God saw that he turned aside to see, God, I'm sorry, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, I want to camp out on this for just a moment. This is what's called a double vocative. It's when a name is called twice in the Bible, and it always happens at significant times. It happens at times of great importance and great urgency. And in fact, it happens at times that have direct connotations and direct implications for the redemptive plan of God. I'll give you some examples. In the very last appearance that he makes to Jacob, God called out to him in Genesis 46 two, Jacob, Jacob. And just like Moses responded, Jacob said, here I am. And what was the message of God at that moment? God comforted him. He told him not to be afraid to take his family to Egypt because in Egypt they would become a great nation. We've already seen that in Genesis 22, when the angel of the Lord saves Isaac's life, he calls out, Abraham, Abraham. And Isaac's life is saved and Israel will come from him. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10 records that to the little boy, God called Samuel, Samuel. And then God gave Samuel the message that he was about to purge Israel of evil in the ranks of the priesthood, part of the redemptive plan of God. God the Son uses the double vocative as well. Luke 10, 41 records Jesus after Martha uh, was complaining that she was doing all the household work while Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. He said, Martha, Martha. And his message was, focus on me. Jesus got Peter's attention when he called him by his previous name in Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But Jesus promised to keep him spiritually safe, and we're thankful that he did. He became one of the apostles. Acts chapter 9 records that when Saul, who would become Paul, was persecuting Christians and on his way to Damascus, the resurrected Lord Jesus called to him from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the Lord would humble Saul, he would save him, and he would make him the greatest missionary and evangelist the world has ever known. In fact, Jesus used the double vocative 
in his own expression of anguish on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of these are important. And so when God calls Moses, Moses, the informed reader knows, oh, this is important. Something momentous is about to happen. Something concerning the redemptive plan of God is about to come about. And it does. Because before receiving any instruction from God, Moses must be schooled in the holiness of God. Look with me at verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, did you notice the dilemma here? God summons Moses, come near me. And then he says, don't come near me. So how do we resolve this dilemma? Well, now we're coming face to face with the holiness of God. And that is a dilemma for us. Holiness here in this context speaks of belonging to its own category. That God is other. He is in his own distinctive realm. He is, he is in a category by himself. And because of the presence of God, the regular ground of Sinai is now transformed into holy, distinctive, set-apart, other ground. And not only is fire often associated with the presence of God, it's often associated with the holiness of God. And why is that? Well, it's, it's very simple. Like fire, there exists something in the nature of God that banishes sinners and endangers all who come near. God is not a safe God. He banishes those who would sin. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden because that was the dwelling place of God. And what was it that guarded that entrance? It was an angel with a flaming sword. A fire is consuming. It can't be approached without being burned and consumed by it. We see the unapproachability of God because God is sinless and we must be sinless also to approach him. Consider these really almost hopeless words. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the standard. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Can you do that? I can't. Sinners are in eternal peril because of the holiness of God. You recall... Isaiah chapter 6, one called to another, angels calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And we see Isaiah saying, woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. And why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He believes he is undone. The holiness of God destroys all that offends him, all that mocks him. In 1 Samuel 6, on what otherwise would have been a happy occasion, the ark of the Lord being returned to Israel from the Philistines, some of the local men in the town of Beth Shemesh got a little bit curious, and they just looked at the ark of the covenant, and God killed 70 of them. Verse 20 of 1 Samuel 6 says, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? they got a real sense of holiness. So this has to be the starting place for Moses. God is a holy fire who cannot be approached. But God makes a way for him to be approached. God commands Moses to approach and remove his sandals. I've heard entire sermons on the sandals of Moses. There's been a lot of speculation over the centuries 
about why God commanded Moses to take off his sandals. Some said that his sandals have come in contact with the sinful world, so he takes them off and his feet come in contact with the sinful world. That doesn't make sense. Others say it was a sign of respect. In fact, in India, some pastors preach barefooted as a sign of respect for the pulpit and for the preached word of God by this same principle. My feet are so ugly, this would make the ground unholy if we did that here. Others say that it was like an ancient Near Eastern host inviting a guest into his home. You invited him to take his shoes or his sandals off. It was a show of invitation and safety. That doesn't seem to be the flavor at all here. And others still point to Exodus 28 and Exodus 39 where the priestly garments mention a covering for every part of the body except the feet. The priests were to be barefooted when they served the Lord. All those are great theories, but none of them really hold water in and of themselves. The greatest similarity we find, though, in Scripture is to Joshua 5, 13 through 15. You don't have to turn there. This is where the angel of the Lord appears to General Joshua right before the conquest of Jericho. And there's a great similarity between these two instances. Both are told that they're on holy ground. Moses is not going to face Egypt alone, and Joshua will not face Jericho alone. And it is the beginning of both of their ministries. So that's about the closest we can come. But what do we make of the removal of the sandals? Well, I think the best we can take away from this and probably the most important concept is the one thing we do know is that the good news is is that God just made a way for Moses to approach him and his holiness. He said, take your sandals off and you won't be consumed. This is holy God who appears in a flame. He is... A living flame having his own life. He is self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's self-maintaining. He's self-empowering, self-energizing. He is the one that draws power from no one. He is power in himself. How do you approach that? Only at the invitation of God. And God invites Moses to approach. And now God reveals his purpose for meeting with Moses. Moses is going to be the mediating savior for his people. Someone who will represent God to them and who will represent them to God. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, And the Jebusites. And behold, now the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, remember I told you in our introductory message that you could almost trace the story of redemptive history purely by looking at all the appearances of the angel of the Lord. If you've listened to the previous five messages, you're already starting to hear some similar themes. Because this is redemptive history, after all. We have seen already the theme of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 6, right here, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. The angel of the Lord has already acted on behalf of Abraham, on behalf of Isaac, on behalf of Jacob, as we've seen in previous weeks. Verse 8, we see the theme of the land. Once again, this is part and parcel of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 10, he speaks of my people, the theme of of the nation that God would bring. And then, of course, we see the theme of redemption. 
you remember that in Genesis 22, God sent Abraham three days' journey to sacrifice Isaac, but then redeemed Isaac and provided a substitute sacrifice? Well, God gives further instruction to Moses. Look with me at verse 18. Verse 18 says, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Another three-day journey to sacrifice, another three-day journey toward redemption. And so God is providing a mediating Savior in Moses. In fact, Moses now becomes a prototype. He becomes a model, the first model of a Savior. Consider some of these similarities. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. Acts 3.22, Peter confirms that Jesus is this prophet who is like Moses. Through Moses, we get the commandments given to Israel. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we get the law of Christ given to the church. Moses mediated the Israelite or the Mosaic covenant, which was for Israel. Jesus mediates the new covenant, which is between God and all people who would believe on him. Both narrowly escaped a murderous king when they were babies. Both Moses and Jesus spent time in Egypt before ministering to their people. Moses was the adopted son of a king, the pharaoh of Egypt, and Jesus is the son of the king, the king of all, God himself. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd. Jesus is called in John 10, the good, what, shepherd. Both were known for their meekness and humility. Numbers 12, verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Both Moses and Jesus performed mighty miracles by the power of God. Both interceded in prayer for their own people. But most importantly, both led God's people out of captivity. Moses led Israel out of physical bondage and slavery and The Lord Jesus Christ led God's elect people out of our spiritual bondage and slavery. In fact, Luke 4.18 records that Jesus read in the synagogue at Nazareth the the prophetic account of himself from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed. So why do I tell you all this? It's no wonder that Jesus told the Jewish leaders who were seeking to kill him in John 5, 46, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. It was a a big moment to say, you don't know Moses. You don't believe him. That's why you don't believe me. How gracious of God to give this prototype where the Jewish Uh, seeker after God, look at Moses and Jesus, Moses and Jesus. This is not a coincidence. This is the work of God bringing a Savior once again. So in the four-part process of redemption, the first part is a mediating Savior. We have to start there. Part two of the process of redemption we'll call a judgment on sin. A judgment on sin. Turn a few pages over to Exodus 12. Moses has met with Pharaoh repeatedly. 
God has brought plagues, nine of them on Egypt, to get glory over Pharaoh. And now the final blow is coming, a judgment on sin. But since all people are sinners and all deserve judgment, God is going to give away to avoid his wrath. Exodus 12, 1 through 6, God gives instructions for the sacrificing of a lamb, which would come to be called the Passover lamb. And this sacrifice would appease the, the wrath of God as he passed judgment over Egypt. Verse 7 indicated that the Israelites were to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel, that's the top of the doorframe, to indicate that the judgment of God was to pass over them, that a sacrifice had been made. This brings us to chapter 12, verse 12. This is God speaking. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, we, we have to lay a foundation here. It's very important to note that God says he is the instrument of judgment. He will pass through the land of Egypt and strike the firstborn and get glory over Pharaoh and over Israel's enemy. Verse 12 says he will execute judgments, meaning that all that God does is fully deserved. This is not an impetuous God, little g, just taking out some sort of frustration. These are deserved judgments. It's the idea of meeting out that which is, is coming to you. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now, we've already laid the foundation that God himself is going to meet out this judgment. But now it seems like there's two characters, the Lord and the destroyer. And at the Lord's command, the destroyer will not enter the houses where blood has been shed and displayed. So the big question is, who is the destroyer? Well, I would submit that this is none other than the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to give you three reasons. The first one we'll call the consistency reason. The consistency reason. In the previous chapters, God has been very clearly identified as the direct cause of the, the other nine plagues. The Nile turning to blood, chapter 7, verse 25, the Lord had struck the Nile. Chapter 8, verse 13, the Lord caused the plague of of frogs and so on and so forth. All of the first nine, God himself personally is the direct cause. So there's the consistency reason. Second reason we could list is that we'll call the compatibility reason. The compatibility reason is, This destroyer is compatible with the angel of the Lord. He is compatible with God. Verse 12, God said, I will strike all the firstborn. I will execute judgments. Verse 23, the Lord will strike the Egyptians. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. God is the direct instrument of this tenth plague. Now, if those two aren't enough for you, the consistency reason, the compatibility reason, I can give you a third one we'll call the contextual reason. The contextual reason, the context of the rest of the Old Testament, 
we see the angel of the Lord is always the instrument of massive judgments. 2 Samuel 24, the angel of the Lord struck down 70,000 Israelite men because of discipline. Isaiah 37, the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians who were surrounding Jerusalem. One of the ministries of the angel of the Lord is to do away with those that God will not keep. That's one of his ministries. Now, let's state that in the positive. One of the ministries of Christ is to preserve those that God will keep. John 17, 2, Jesus said to his father, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In other words, the Father has chosen some for salvation. We read that in Ephesians 1. And Christ will keep every one of them and give them eternal life. So these are simply mirror image ministries of the same thing. The angel of the Lord judging those God will not keep and preserving those that he will. Now, some feel a little bit of discomfort with verse 23 that the Lord will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. It feels as if this seems to be God is dictating to the destroyer that they're, they're at odds with one another. This is no different than the functional submission which the Son of God exercises in relation to the Father. Jesus said in John five nineteen, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the, Lord do, whatever the Father does, that, that the Son does likewise. And get it even clearer, a few verses later in John 15, verse 30, Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the angel of the Lord, the destroyer, Jesus Christ, Fully God and equal to God in essence and in attributes and in holiness. He functions as the loving son doing the perfect will of his father. By the way, it has to be the angel of the Lord. It has to be him. Because only the angel of the Lord has every right and every privilege to save those who are to be saved and to destroy those who would rebel against him. Because obviously the blood on the doorpost isn't sufficient for eternal salvation. The Passover lamb was a temporary covering. But the angel of the Lord alone has the right and has the privilege to save because someday it'll be his blood on the doorposts of the hearts of all who would believe on him. Someday he would be the substitute. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 reminds us that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we love these verses you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The angel of the Lord alone has the right and the privilege to be the destroyer and the savior. In fact, that might be a reasonable question. You might ask, how can Jesus be the destroyer and the sacrificial lamb? How can he be both? How can he be the destroyer and the savior? Well, in Revelation 14, we see a sign, a scene rather of the eternal judgment of hell. And guess who is supervising, acting as destroyer? Revelation 14.10, those who reject Christ, quote, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, who is the destroyer. By the way, that's the case for all of you. Christ will be for all of you either the destroyer or the lamb. 
I should point out a little detail in verses 29 and 30. The angel of the Lord struck down the firstborn. It's not just that the destroyer made the firstborn of every household die in his sleep. It happened in some way that was seen or heard. Verse 30 says all the families of Egypt were up in the middle of the night crying over their dead. Can I put it this way? The wrath of God is not silent, nor is it merciful. There is no swift, easy death. It was horrific because sin is horrific. And for you, my prayer is that Christ would be the lamb who forgives sin, not the destroyer who punishes you for your sin. So we have a mediating Savior. You must have a judgment on sin. The third part of the process of redemption, a secure salvation. A secure salvation. If God is going to save you, you you have to be secure in that. Turn with me to Exodus 14, just a page or so over. Israel has escaped Egypt. And to make them dependent on him alone, God led them to a specific place. He trapped them. He trapped the whole nation, two to three million of them, between the mighty Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea before them on the other. And the, the Israelites are terrified, and rightly so. Chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? They're terrified. And right before Moses would lift his hand over the Red Sea, To see God part the waters before them, the angel of the Lord makes certain that Israel knows that their redemption is secure. How does he do this? Chapter 14, verse 19. Chapter 14, verse 19. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So we have the angel of the Lord, the pillar of cloud, the visible manifestation of the glory of God who had led them now moves to a protective position behind them, between them and the Egyptian army. Now this last phrase here in verse 20 is a little bit obscure in Hebrew, And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. It's a pretty big translation challenge, but we can kind of pull it apart to get the the components and get at least a basic understanding. We know that the cloud of the Lord came between Egypt and Israel. We know that the cloud had darkness and the cloud had light. And we know that the darkness didn't come near the light all night long. So what can we conclude from that? Well, really, there's only one picture you could draw, and that is that the cloud not only protectively separated the Egyptians from the Israelites, but it cast the Egyptians into a pitch black night and cast the Israelites into the light of day by which they could pack up and get ready to go. Why would they have the courage to leave? Because at the very same time, As they see the angel of the Lord in this cloud of light and darkness behind them, they could look ahead of them. And verse 21 gives them courage. Then Moses stretched out his hand. Verse 16 tells us he had his staff. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The same staff by which Moses had inflicted plagues on Egypt is now in a stretched out hand, and the Lord uses his own forces of a massive wind to divide the waters. Now, you've all seen movies or maybe artistic renditions of the crossing of the Red Sea and What do you usually see? Well, you see water kind of piled up as the Israelites march along right between these these kind of walls of water. And in most renditions, it looks like these walls are just a few yards apart and the Israelites are, are, are hurrying on through. For generations, people have tried to explain away this miracle. They've tried to diminish it. That maybe Israel wasn't actually at the Red Sea. There's a whole thought of scholars that say, actually, it's called the Sea of Reeds, which means it was just a swamp, and they just kind of trudged through it, so it wasn't actually miraculous, but that's based on some really faulty language assumptions. It is the Red Sea. Others say Israel must have been going through a lake, uh, some sort of bog, or at the very most, it was a really, really, really shallow part of the Red Sea. All of these ideas are an attempt to downplay the scale of this miracle by placing the Red Sea anywhere else other than where it must be, and that is the Gulf of Suez, which is 195 miles long, average depth 131 feet, between 12 and 27 miles wide. That's the northwestern extension of the Red Sea, kind of going this way. Or maybe it's the other arm of the Red Sea going the other direction, the Gulf of Aqaba, which is 100 miles long, 15 miles wide, and over a mile deep. Both places are referred to in the, Red, in the Old Testament as the Red Sea. They're connected to it. Never in the Old Testament does the Red Sea refer to a lake, a bog, or a swamp. It doesn't. There's been a lot of remarkable scholarship in recent years to show that the Gulf of Aqaba couldn't be the crossing, so we're left with the western arm, the Gulf of Suez, on the border of Egypt. And if the Israelites were right near the northern tip, if they were right near the top, then Egypt could have just gone around and caught up to them, so they couldn't be there. And by the way, the entire northern section of the Gulf of Suez is made up of, of craggy, rocky mountains and cliffs. You couldn't get two to three million people through that. So all that's left is one of a few very flat and very narrow and into waters that are very, very deep crossing places in the Gulf of Suez. That's the only place possible. The angel of the Lord is securing them, protecting them, and these walls of water are going up. Now, let's do a little math here. Some of you are are math people, so you'll like this. It's been calculated that a 50-foot-wide rank of people would make a line almost 200 miles long So the path through the Red Sea had to be wide. Why did it have to be wide? Well, they crossed the Red Sea or they finished the crossing during the morning watch. According to Exodus 14, 21, they went all the way through in one night before dawn. If they walked a thousand people across, then the sea would have to be open a mile wide and extended back almost two miles. But they had flocks and herds. They're carrying everything they own. They just plundered the Egyptians. I mean, all the women there have rings on every finger going, this is awesome. And so you have to be bigger than that. So it's not outside the realm of likelihood that the water opened into a two, three, or four mile wide gap. How big a wall of water is this? A very broad estimate 
puts the volume of water being held back, something on the order of all of Lake Tahoe, which is the sixth largest lake in the country, being divided in two and going up into two walls. At that point, there's no way to calculate it. It is a miracle of massive proportions effected by the angel of the Lord. Now, why would God effect their escape from Egypt and then trap them between the world's largest army and in impossibly deep waters? Why is that? Think about yourself. Could you bridge the gap between you and God? Could you bridge the gap of your own sin? Could you do anything to please God? No, something so marvelous, so incredible had to happen that for all of eternity, you will give glory to God. And in the same way that Israel is forced to, and all through Scripture we see this, give glory to God for an absolutely miraculous escape that has no other explanation. So we also must give glory to God that our escape, our redemption is absolutely all to His glory. We did nothing. And so the angel of the Lord says, go here, go here, go here. Camp here. You're trapped. And now only God can get glory. The angel of the Lord alone protected and secured their redemption. How horrible would it be? And what would it say about God if the Egyptian army caught up to Israel and the rest of the Bible just ends with, well, they almost made it. It's just as bad as saying, Well, this person was in Christ and he almost made it to heaven. That can't be. It's God holding up the walls of water. And they won't come down until the very last one that he's chosen comes through. It's God restraining the wickedness that would pursue you and overtake you. The enemy was in the dark and God's people were in the light, separated by the angel of the Lord. What does this remind you of? This reminds us very clearly of the glorious prologue to the Gospel of John, speaking of Christ, the Word of God. In John 1, 4 and 5, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Did you catch that? Once you're in the light of Christ, the darkness of your own sin, your own degradation will never catch up. Never. There's never a a, a point. Those Israelites did not know, could not see or fathom what it was like on the other side of the pillar of cloud who is the angel of the Lord. And likewise, those Egyptians could not see or fathom what it was like to be in the light. How sad would it be to say, Jesus saved me and I almost made it home. No, you have to have a secure salvation. And so you have a mediating Savior, a judgment on sin, a secure salvation. Well, the fourth part of the process of redemption then becomes very obvious, a certain homecoming. You have a certain homecoming. Once again, the main character in this process of redemption is the angel of the Lord. Turn with me to Exodus 23. Exodus 23, and now God has given Israel the Ten Commandments, the covenant that he made with them to be their God. They will be his people God has commissioned them to go and take the land already given to them through their forefather Abraham and God's covenant with them. In Exodus 23, verse 20, here's his deal. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. 
God says here in verse 20, he's sending an angel before Israel, but this is clearly the angel of the Lord, God, because he has power to forgive. Only God has power to forgive. Same thing in verse 23, when my angel goes before you. And then we get this interesting metaphor. To my knowledge, it may be the only time in the Bible we get this metaphor. Verse 28, and I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I'm not entirely certain why this is traditionally translated hornets, because in Hebrew this is a singular noun and it has a definite article, meaning the hornet, the one, the singular. And given the context of the rest of chapter 23, that it's the angel of the Lord going before Israel, I think it simply provides another way of thinking about the ministry of Christ, the stinging, lightning-fast ally who goes ahead of his people. Now, why is this so important? Well, because the process of redemption would be meaningless without a certain homecoming. That would be pointless that they receive the land that God promised them. If they don't receive the land, then what's the point of all the other promises? And so ultimately, on a temporal and a somewhat incomplete basis, the conquest of the promised land would be successful. But as we've seen and said numbers of times before, the boundaries which make up, made up ancient Israel and certainly the boundaries of Israel as it is today, that's not anywhere near what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. Israel as it currently is, and certainly uh, that's not the Israel of the future, the, the repentant Israel, that Zechariah 12.10 speaks of, but Israel as it currently is, this isn't the fulfillment, not yet. I just want to illustrate the promises of a certain homecoming. It's important, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's not done. I want to think about the situation in Israel as it is right now. And in fact, we have the help of a Jewish scholar who understands that Americans are horrible at geography, especially global geography. And so this scholar came up with a way to explain what's happening in Israel today using American geography with which we're a little more familiar. And so he says that Israel and New Jersey are basically the same size, and that's true, and that the United States and all of the Middle East, the rest of the Middle East, are roughly the same size as well. Both New Jersey and Israel represent about 0.2% of the land mass of the U.S. and the Middle East, respectively, The populations as of just last year in Israel, 8,884,000. New Jersey, 8,882,000. Now, here's where he helps us out. Imagine that the other 49 states of the United States have a complaint against New Jersey. And that complaint is New Jersey has too much land. The other, can you even see New Jersey on the map? You can barely see it. The other states all want to divide New Jersey in half, and they want to cut the capital of Trenton down the middle as well to create two new states. On top of that, all around there's chaos. Other states are in a near-constant state of civil war and conflict. Pennsylvania is in a civil war with hundreds of thousands dead. A million refugees are homeless in this area because of these wars. The worst terrorists in the world are raised up and trained in many of the other states. This is this scholar's idea, not mine, California is developing nuclear weapons and threatening to destroy New Jersey and is sponsoring terrorism all over the world. He doesn't know how right he may be. (laughs) On a regular basis, Delaware is shooting missiles into the most populated areas of New Jersey and New York is sending terrorists on a regular basis to attack civilians in New Jersey. 
The other 49 states are in conflict with each other, but they all agree on one thing. New Jersey has to go. Over the past 70 years, four major wars have been fought trying to eliminate New Jersey. On every occasion, New Jersey fought them off. All of the Middle East agrees on one thing. Israel has too much land. We should note, Israel today is somewhere about in the vicinity of 8,000 square miles. I mean, in Kern County, people own farms bigger than that. I want you to note something, that the prophecies in Ezekiel 40 through 48 detail the national boundaries of Israel as they will be somewhere in the vicinity of five to eight times bigger than it is now. It overwhelms Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and a good chunk of Egypt. That's Israel. They haven't come home yet. There will be a homecoming of epic proportions. And guess who's leading the way according to Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19? The Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, who will come to finish what he began so long ago. If you'll indulge me, I just want to do one more thing. Turn with me back to Ephesians 1, where we began our time this morning in our scripture reading. I just want to point something out briefly to you concerning the progression of redemption. In Ephesians 1, this great Trinitarian declaration of our salvation, of our redemption, and then we'll be done. What does this say about the progression of redemption? Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What do we see here? A mediating Savior. Verse 7. In Him, that is Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. What do we see here? A judgment on sin. Only instead of our sin being judged by Christ, He became the one who was judged on our behalf. Verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is that? That is a secure salvation And what should that lead to? What do you think the very next verse is going to talk about? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? That is a certain homecoming. You see that the process of redemption has always been the same. It has always been a mediating savior, judgment on sin, a secure salvation, and a certain homecoming. That blesses my heart. Because I know that God's plan has been consistent and perfect start to finish. Amen? Let's pray. Long before Bethlehem, Father, your dear son was vitally active in the redemption of all who would believe on him. Because of the four actions that we outlined this morning, Lord, the nation of Israel would survive. And even through discipline and difficulties and hardships, Our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. And he would grow up to become that sacrifice for sin, which we desperately need, for we cannot pay that price. For the wages of sin is death. But we thank you that the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.